As usual, I start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa, and you may join. Namo tassa bhagavata arahata samma sambodhasa Namo tassa bhagavata arahata samma sambodhasa Namo tassa bhagavata Arahata Samma Sambodasa. In the instructions for the Vipassana meditation, I have repeatedly said how important the practice of walking meditation is. So tonight I'm going to dedicate a whole talk to the practice of walking meditation. You know, why should we do it? Why not just simply practicing sitting meditation all the time? Except for eating, going to the toilet, and a little bit of sleeping. (laughs) Walking, this is a daily experience for most people. People walk around in their house, in their flat. People walk to the shop, to the bus station, to the train station, to the garage, to the car. Or kids are walking to school. At least in Switzerland they do. Here I see many school buses who pick the kids up. Or people walk out in nature, hiking in the mountains, walking along the beach, going for a bush walk, doing some sightseeing uh, on foot. Or people go also on pilgrimage on foot. They walk to a certain destination, like the famous um, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And, you know, before the invention of ox carts or horse carts, before there were bicycles and cars and trains and aeroplanes, people walked much more and they walked much longer distances. Can you imagine a life without being able to walk? I think it would be very difficult for many of us. Walking is an interesting process that we normally do not pay much attention to. As a kid, we learn to walk when we are still so young that we mostly do not remember how we learned to walk. As far as we can back remember into childhood, we just were always able to walk. Maybe it's only after uh, spraining an ankle or hurting one's knee, or after an accident and surgery, 
that we have to learn to walk again. And maybe it's only then, when we are no longer able to walk, that we realize how convenient it is to walk, to walk around. And we realize how we simply take it for granted that we can walk. So as I said, walking is an interesting process that we usually do not pay much attention to. However, for our meditation practice, walking becomes an or walking becomes an important and as I found in my practice an extremely helpful part of the whole practice of meditation. I don't know how I would have survived my many years of intensive meditation practice in Burma was it not for the walking meditation. The Buddha had said that we can practice in four postures. These are sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. And so for the meditation practice, I think what people most often um, refer to meditation is sitting meditation. And we have many statues of the Buddha in the sitting posture. But also there are some reclining Buddha statues and they either um, show him as resting or entering Parinibbana, his final passing away. And this reclining posture is also called the lion's posture, usually lying on his right side. The right hand is propping up his head and the left leg is on top of the right leg, which touches the ground. But of course there are also uh, Buddha statues which show him in the standing posture and not so many that uh, show him in walking posture. In Thailand there are some uh, very nice stand walking uh, postures or statues which kind of have this um, momentum to it which kind of indicate, yeah, he's walking. So for our practice of meditation, in retreat, meditators are mostly not able to simply sit all day long, to simply practice in the sitting posture for many, many, many hours on end. So walking becomes an important part and so the walking is done alternating with the sitting. 
and in Thailand, in the forest monasteries, <coughs> where the monks have the little own hut somewhere in the forest, there is always a walking path right next to the hut. So they could sit, they could practice sitting meditation in the hut, then they would get up and practice the walking meditation in front of their hut. So as I've already said, walking meditation is important, an, uh, an important part of this practice. And so, in this talk tonight, I will speak about its significance, then also about the benefits that can be gained from this practice. We'll talk about its nature, including some of the insights that can be gained by doing walking meditation. <coughs> so the significance of walking meditation. Walking meditation is simply an integral part for the continuous development of mindfulness. And so for the continuous development of mindfulness, the mindfulness in the daily activities is equally important. So as our mindfulness should become more and more continuous and uninterrupted, we try to have this continuity, not only in the sitting practice, but then continuing into the walking and into daily activities. I already mentioned this example, like if you want to boil water, and if you turn off the switch every now and again, then the kettle, uh, the water in the kettle will never boil. And likewise, mindfulness needs to become more constant and continuous, so then it will become more powerful, it will become stronger, and at the same time our concentration will strengthen too. Some meditators, they doubt the benefit of walking meditation, and they simply think that walking is to release the pain or the tension that has built up during the sitting meditation. So it's taken as kind of a break. And so instead of walking, they go and have a cup of tea. I think it would be really interesting to have a retreat in which the teachers would not sit with the yogis, but that they would do the walking meditation together with the yogis. And so the sitting meditation then would be the time to go to the toilet, to have a cup of tea, to have a little snack in the room. <laughs> Imagine how this would be. 
so in this sutta on the foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha mentioned walking meditation twice. It's mentioned in the section called postures, mentioning these four postures. And there he said, and because this talk was given to a group of monks, so he referred to a monk. So he said, a monk knows I am walking when he is walking. We can say a meditator knows that she or he is walking when walking. And he mentioned walking meditation again in another chapter called Clear Comprehension. And there the Buddha said, a monk or a meditator, a monk applies clear comprehension in going forward and in going back. So clear comprehension means the correct understanding of what one observes. So to correctly understand what is observed, a meditator needs to be one-pointed, needs to be focused or concentrated. And in order to become focused and concentrated, a meditator <coughs> must be mindful, must be aware of what is happening right there. And so therefore, when the Buddha said, monks or meditators apply clear comprehension, we must understand that not only clear comprehension must be applied, but it also refers to mindfulness and concentration. So also mindfulness and concentration must be applied to walking back and forth. As we are told, the Buddha became the Buddha, became completely liberated while sitting under the Bodhi tree. So his final breakthrough happened in the sitting posture. But many of his disciples did not become fully enlightened in the sitting posture. For some of them it was during the walking meditation, others they even had a big breakthrough while carrying out daily activities, while being mindful of washing their feet, or even an old nun while she was um, falling uh, on the ground. So examples of disciples of the Buddha who became enlightened during the walking are the Venerable Moggallana, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, and then uh, a monk called Venerable Subhadda. And he approached the Buddha while he was 
on his deathbed, about just before <coughs> um, passing away, he asked for some instructions for the meditation. The Buddha gave them to him, and so immediately he started to practice walking meditation, and within a short time he became fully liberated. The Buddha was still alive shortly after passed away. So he was the last disciple who became uh, fully liberated while the Buddha was still alive. When I was staying at um, Chamyayeta Meditation Center in Mobi, in Burma, a bit north of Yangon, we had a French yogi coming to the center and she practiced for about two or three months, I forgot. But what I remember very clearly is the fact that she loved the walking meditation. And in the interviews, she would give very detailed reports about how she experienced the movement, the sensations in the feet. And she said, you know, that she easily could walk for two or even three hours at a time without having a break. So what are the benefits gained from practicing walking meditation? The Buddha mentioned five benefits that can be gained from practicing walking meditation. And these five benefits are explained in a discourse found in the Anguttara Nikaya. Four of these five benefits relate to, the, to our health or to our physical condition. And the Buddha was well aware that a healthy and fit body is a supportive condition for our practice. And of course, the Buddha also knew that a deep penetrating understanding of the Dhammas can happen in the walking meditation. He knew that uh, to become fully liberated was also possible in walking. And then the fifth benefit, this one is more closely linked to the establishment of wholesome mental states. So these are the five benefits gained from walking meditation as explained by the Buddha. The first one is, one is able to walk long distances. And we must understand that at the time of the Buddha, there was no public transport. The Buddha and his disciples, they really walked long distances from one place to another. When we look at the map of India and check out all the places where the Buddha had been, we see, yeah, long distances. And in my own practice, I really could see that 
before I went to Burma in 1992, I had already planned going to Ladakh, the Indian Himalayas, to do some trekking there. I had planned to go there with a friend. And so I went to Burma and I thought that I would only stay there for three months. <coughs> and so, um, yeah, then the following year I would go to Ladakh. But as it turned out, I was not only staying three months, but I wanted to stay longer, so I stayed six months, and then it was time to go and meet my friend in Ladakh. And practicing under Sayadaw Ujjanaka, who laid very much stress on the slowing down of walking meditation, as well as in the day-to-day -day activities, so for these six months, I was basically never walking faster than a snail. And I didn't do any exercise, I didn't do any yoga, we couldn't go for any walks, not allowed to leave the center. And that was in Yangon, very narrow, very small. And sometimes in my meditations, when planning would come up, and oh yeah, next summer I will go to Ladakh, but will I be able to hike up in these mountains? I will not be fit, you know, I have no exercise, I'm not walking even in a normal uh, pace. So some worry would come up, but then I would let go of it, continue. And then, when I left after these six months and went to Ladakh, I realized I was as fit as I had been before. And I could walk long distances, trekking for 10 days, hiking up to 5,000 meters, crossing passes. So that's the first benefit. Then the second benefit that the Buddha mentioned is walking meditation creates energy or it boosts our energy. So when energy is low, it is better to do walking meditation than sitting. So if you really feel kind of sluggish and low energy in the sitting and if we have tried to be mindful of it or you know, to bring up more energy in the sitting, but if you simply cannot do it, then it's better to get up and do walking meditation. The third benefit the Buddha mentioned is good health. Just very generally, it's good for our health. And the fourth benefit that's related to the health or a more specific aspect of our health that's a good digestion. And we all know how important it is that our digestion is good, that it is functioning well. And especially those of you who have been to Asia and maybe uh, suffered from not good digestion diarrhea and so on, you know how um, difficult it is to bear and how depleting it is and how we lose our energy. 
So these are the four benefits that relate to our health, to our physical well-being. And then the fifth benefit that the Buddha mentioned is it's, it establishes a long-lasting concentration. And so, especially this last benefit, it's a very interesting one and also a very helpful one. From my own experience, I could see and I could experience that the walking, no, that the concentration uh, developed by a very focused walking meditation was really very stable and that it lasted uh, for quite some time. It's a bit harder to establish good concentration in the walking because we are more easily distracted because we walk with the eyes open we see, we notice things and so we can more easily get distracted but when I was really able in my walking meditation to restrain my eyes and to be really focused on the movement of the feet, on the sensations in the feet, then I could attain quite a deep state of concentration. And then, when I went to the next sitting meditation, being careful that I maintained my mindfulness until I had sat down on my place, when I started the sitting, I could really see how the mind had um, or the mind was already in a much deeper state of concentration than if I would just have started with the sitting meditation. So I found uh, this one a really very helpful and um, supportive uh, benefit. Then another advantage of the walking meditation is the fact that the object, the primary object in the walking meditation is quite clear and distinct. So as we are focused on the foot, the movement of the foot, the sensations in the foot, so taking a step, this movement is quite obvious and clear. It's a bit clearer, more obvious than the rising and falling movement of the abdomen that we have as the anchor in the sitting. And when something is quite clear and obvious, the mind can more easily be mindful of it, can more easily kind of focus on it and doesn't it doesn't lose it so easily. Objects that are subtle and fine are mm, a bit more difficult to mm, really hold the attention. And another advantage in the walking meditation is the fact that for most meditators the movement of the foot is kind of a neutral object. 
this movement of the foot or the sensations, they are not really pleasant or attractive, but they are also not unpleasant uh, or painful or repulsive. And it is said that the concentration which has been built on a neutral object is strong and lasting. <coughs> so as I said, in my own practice I came to see this benefit that walking meditation produces a strong and long-lasting concentration. And although it needed a bit more diligence or effort to doing the walking really kind of seriously and focused, but uh, this little more effort that was needed made well up for the good concentration that then, that then I got in the sitting meditation. So Sairo Upandita, also uh, stressing the fact that if walking is important, he said, a yogi who does not practice walking meditation before sitting is like a car with a run-down battery. And so, whenever possible, it would be good to start with doing the walking meditation first and then go to the sitting meditation. So these are the benefits and the advantages we gain from the practice of walking meditation. And so we see walking meditation is simply an integral part of this practice. In the sitting meditation we watch the rising and falling and thoughts and sounds and pains and emotions and mental images and so on. And the same thing we can do in the walking meditation. Well, not rising and falling of the abdomen, but we uh, are mindful of the movement of the foot, the sensations in the feet. We also uh, are mindful of the thoughts, sounds, emotions, pains uh, and so on. So basically, they are the same, except the posture is different. So being mindful of all these different experiences or objects that uh, come up in sitting, in walking, so then in walking we can gain the same insights into the true nature of things. So also in walking, we can uh, see clearly, for example, the three general characteristics anicca, dukkha and anatta. So there is nothing that makes the sitting meditation inherently better 
then the walking meditation. So now I will talk about the nature of walking meditation and some insights that can be gained from doing walking meditation. When we read the suttas, the words of the Buddha, we do not find detailed <coughs> instructions for the walking meditation. Although, you know, the Buddha is me- uh, has mentioned that like cl- clear comprehension to going back and forth, forward and back, or to be mindful in all the four postures, including walking, but he never gave kind of practical or clear instructions of how to do the walking meditation. So it was only later on that different teachers then developed kind of their style of doing walking meditation and then gave more detailed instructions for the walking meditation. And so when I went to Burma to practice meditation, I learned to practice walking meditation according to, it, to the instructions given by Mahasi Sayadaw. And so in this method, based on Mahasi Sayadaw, meditators are instructed to pay close attention to the movement of the foot and to be mindful of the sensations that arise while doing the walking. So I will just run through these instructions without uh, going into any details. I have already explained them in greater details in the morning instructions. So one would start with observing just each step as a step, being aware of right, left, right, left. And then the next step would be to observe two parts in each step, which can either be kind of lifting the foot and placing it, or um, just the movement of the foot taking a step and then putting it on the ground. Then the next step would be to do it in three parts, the lifting, pushing and dropping of the foot, then four parts, the lifting, pushing, dropping and touching, then one could divide it into five parts, lifting, pushing, dropping, touching, and pressing. Even more um, details could be noted. But then one also notes intentions, like the intention to walk, or the intention before each step. 
can go into more detail the intention uh, before each separate movement. So the intention before the lifting movement, the intention before the pushing movement, the intention before the dropping movement, and so on. And so, as more and more parts of each step are observed, then the meditators naturally slow down. Because if one walks too fast, then there is no way to really clearly see each of these different parts. So then a gradual slowing down is needed. It's like if we need to search a certain street and if you're driving with a car, if we drive down the road very fast, so then the streets going off to the right side of the street, um, we, we see the street signs, but because we are driving so fast, we cannot read. So if you want to read them, we slow down with the car, then we can uh, read. So what, what insights can be gained from doing the walking meditation? As I said, basically the same insights as we can gain from the sitting meditation or even from being aware during the day-to-day -day activities. As I already said, generally, also in the walking meditation, we can uh, realize the three general characteristics in Pali, anicca, dukkha and anatta, meaning the impermanent nature of all uh, things, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, and anatta, the not-self nature of uh, all these processes. Besides the general characteristics, there are also specific characteristics that pertain to specific uh, aspects of an uh, experience. And what I found very powerful in the practice of walking meditation was the fact that the four primary elements could be experienced so easily and so clearly. And so seeing the four primary elements, that uh, refers to see specific characteristics. So these four primary elements, you may know, these are the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind, or air. You know, earth, water, fire, and air, they do not refer to real earth or real fire, but these elements stand for certain qualities that can be found in these elements. Earth element stands for hardness and softness. 
The water element stands for fluidity and cohesion. The fire element stands for the qualities of heat, but also cold or warmth. And the wind or air element stands for the qualities of movement, vibrations, motion and support. And so for me, the walking meditation was really a very good opportunity to realize these four primary elements as a very direct and intuitive experience. So it was not an intellectual understanding of these uh, elements, not an analytical understanding. And so through the walking, it made it possible um, to to directly experience these elements through the body without the intellect already having made uh, preconceived ideas or concepts. So I'll give you an example. Let's say a meditator observes each step in four parts as the lifting movement, pushing movement, dropping movement and the touching sensation. And so in the lifting, pushing, dropping, what can be very clearly experienced is movement. And then in the touching, their hardness or softness can be experienced. That would be the earth element. Or if the ground is warm or very cold, the fire element would be experienced. Or the water element could be experienced through the characteristic of cohesion, kind of a stickiness. And so as I said, in the lifting, pushing, dropping, uh, we experience the movement, so that's manifestation of the air element. So in just observing one step in these four parts, all the four elements can be experienced directly as an intuitive experience. It's not an intellectual understanding. And so, when we experience these four primary elements as either movement or heat or softness, then we get away from the conventional level, we get away from concepts, and we go to the level of absolute reality, of what really exists. At the beginning of our practice, and when we do the walking meditation, these two levels are still mixed. So there can be conventional level and absolute level. For example, when we lift the foot, push it forward, drop it down, 
we still may have the notion of my foot being lifted. And so the notion of a foot, that's a concept. But we also notice the movement. And so just knowing the movement, being aware of that aspect, then we are on the absolute level. Later on, when mindfulness and concentration become deeper and stronger, then when we lift the foot, for example, we may no longer have the notion of my foot is being lifted. All we know is movement and it's kind of something is lifted. So then, yeah, we do not think in terms of my foot as a concept, but we simply know movement is happening. And so then with that, um, we are on the absolute level, the absolute reality. And later on in the practice, it can happen that not only one loses the notion of a foot or the form of a foot, but even the whole body, like the concept, the form of the body, kind of disappears. And what we then perceive is just movement is happening, like something is moving. So then we have the lev left the level of conventional reality and have entered the level of absolute reality. Something else that we can experience is that on the one hand, yes, we are aware of movement, first of all the foot that is moving, but later on we just perceive movement. But then we also notice that there is something yeah, that observes that movement or that knows that movement is happening. So one comes to see that there is on the one hand the mind, the knowing of the movement, and on the other hand, there is this physical process of movement happening. So one comes to differentiate between the mind and the body. Differentiate between the mental process and the physical process. So seeing very clearly that they are different. The mind has the capacity to know or to be aware of something. Whereas physical processes, physical phenomenon does not have this capacity to know or to be aware of. So this is the insight into the differentiation of 
mental and physical processes. Then, when I went through the instructions for the walking meditation, I mentioned that also intentions can uh, be known. Intentions that happen uh, before the movements. So then, meditators realize that just the moment before, let's say, the lifting movement of the foot happens, there is a little mental impulse that is kind of triggering the movement to happen. And we call this uh, little mental impulse intention. So the meditators see that before the lifting movement there is this mental impulse that causes the foot to be lifted. And it also happens before the foot is being pushed forward. It doesn't just happen like this, but there is this intention, this mental mm, moment, like a mental flicker. It's very fast, it's very subtle, but it's there. And also before the dropping, it's the intention that is there, the intention to drop, that then causes the foot to be dropped. And so then meditators come to understand that it is this intention that causes movements to happen. And it's not only the movement of the foot, but any movement with the body is always caused by an intention. And so with that, uh, meditators can realize cause and effect. So seeing that when there is a cause, an intention, then there is an effect, the movement in this case. Or it's uh, seeing the relationship between the conditioned or the conditioning and the conditioned. So there's a conditioning, a cause, and then something conditioned is the result. So in regard to the three general characteristics, the impermanence, unsatisfactory nature and impersonal nature, walking meditation offers many opportunities to realize them. What follows is just a few examples of how these characteristics can be experienced in the walking. So when we observe like the three parts of the step, the lifting, pushing, dropping, when we do it quite slow and detailed, so we see that the lifting movement has a beginning and then it stops, it ends. And then the pushing movement starts and it stops. And then the dropping movement starts and finishes in touching the ground. So then it becomes clear, yes, the lifting movement is impermanent, it's not everlasting. It arises, 
and then disappears. Pushing movement is also not eternal and everlasting. It arises, lasts, and then disappears. Likewise, the dropping movement. So this is just one way of seeing the impermanence. Many more ways of seeing impermanence in walking are possible. Then in regard to the unsatisfactoriness, dukkha aspect, there is a stage in the Vipassana meditation practice when the disappearance or dissolution of objects becomes predominant. And then also in regard to movements, so the arising of the movement, the beginning of a movement is no longer seen very clearly, but what the meditator then knows is just that each movement, sorry, each movement stops, disappears. it's this constant disappearance of uh, bits of movements. And this also happens in regard to other objects. And so when the mind is confronted with this constant uh, disappearance of objects that are noted, the mind can freak out, it can get wary, and then it starts to feel oppressed by this constant disappearance. So because in this case the movement just the disappearance is seen. So there is nothing stable, nothing that lasts for a little bit and so there is nothing for the mind to grasp or to hold on to. And so there the dukkha aspect is experienced very clearly. So this unsatisfactory nature of this object is seen. Then in regard to the anatta nature, not-self, or the impersonal nature of phenomena, In the walking meditation, as we watch the movements of the foot, so then we come to realize that these movements, these phenomena, arise and disappear like on their own accord. Somehow then we also see that we do not have these movements under our absolute control. And we also come to see kind of that these movements happen happen based on the intentions to move and then a movement happens and then another intention and then another um, movement and so sometimes it seems as if it is happening on their own accord without us doing them or wanting to do them and so in this way it becomes more and more obvious that these processes in the body, the walking, are impersonal processes. Seeing 
um, the cause and effect relationship. So as I said, when meditation is deepening, mindfulness becoming um, sharper, concentration deeper, then in the walking meditation, the movement of the foot seems to happen as if by itself. It seems that the foot all of a sudden is automatically lifted and then it's like automatically pushed forward and automatically dropped down. And when this happened to me in my practice, this felt really strange. It felt really uh, a bit odd. And it felt like I was being walked. And the image that I had was like being a puppet on string, a marionette. I felt as if an invisible string had been attached to my foot and that an invisible force then was lifting the string and with that my foot was lifted. And then this invisible force pulled the string forward and with that my foot was moving forward. And it really felt strange and odd when it started to happen like this. And um, so then really this walking process seemed to be so impersonal. It was no longer that I had the sense of I am walking, but I had the sense of it is walking. <coughs> so this is again just one way that um, anatta nature can be uh, experienced in walking meditation. And in my own practice, I found that especially the walking meditation was so incredibly helpful to understand this impersonal nature of the body-mind process. So to really understand this anatta nature, which was kind of a, a riddle to me. What is meant by not-self or the empty nature? <clears throat> and so the key to this understanding, so to this intuitive understanding, not an intellectual understanding, so the key to this understanding was the careful and detailed awareness of the movements and the intentions. And I think if I had only practiced sitting meditation, this very direct, personal, intuitive understanding of not-self, the anatta nature, it would have taken much longer to really come to understand. (coughs) 
Another aspect that we can come to clearly experience, see and understand in the walking meditation is the momentariness of the objects or of phenomena. When a film is um, shown in slow motion, then movements become a bit um, jerky. Like if you have seen old films of Charlie Chaplin, there we see kind of the movements of a person. It's a bit jerky, it's not as smooth as we you know, usually perceive it. And so, in our practice, in the walking meditation practice, when mindfulness is good, concentration is deep, then um, our mind becomes like a magnifying glass or even a microscope. And so then we can see these um, processes uh, in a very accurate manner. And so, like in regard to movement, as I've already mentioned once, <coughs> then the movement is not seen as just one smooth movement from A to B, but seeing many little um, moments of movements, one after the other, in rapid succession. And so then we really see how momentarily movement happens. Just a fraction of a second, which is followed by another very short movement. <coughs> so, these are some of the insights that can be gained from practicing walking meditation. I will close this talk with the words of Sayadaw Usilananda. He passed away in 2005. He had been a disciple of Mahasi Sayadaw and he lived and taught for many years in the USA, in San Jose. So Sayadaw Usilananda said, Walking meditation is conducive to spiritual development. It is as powerful as, as mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the rising and falling of the abdomen. It is an efficient tool to help us remove mental defilements. Walking meditation can help us gain insight into the nature of things and we should practice it as diligently as we practice sitting meditation or any other kind of meditation. Let's sit quietly for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.